can open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Well, it happens to me every time. I can't quite explain the feeling, but it's this feeling that I didn't know other people had. I remember having a phone call with my dad one day and talking about kind of this weird feeling. I felt like maybe I might be the only one who had it, but I now know other people do. And it is this, going into a Major League Baseball stadium, and you're walking kind of through the little entryway up toward the field, and you get to see the field. And, and there's this moment when you're coming up over like the concrete walkway or whatever, and you see the field, and there's this like, it, it just, it, every time I get these little like flutters in my stomach or something, it's this weird like, that is awesome. Now, maybe you're not into baseball. Maybe it's another sport for you. Maybe it's at a theatrical production at the end, and you're just like, yeah, or something like that. There are moments of awe and wonder that we have in our lives. You're hiking the mountains, and there's the peak, and you're looking out over the peak, and you're like, wow. Today, as we continue our journey through the book of Revelation entitled The Lamb Who Conquered, John is going to try to describe the indescribable. He is going to have one of those wow moments, the wow and wonder <clears throat> moments because we're getting a glimpse. He's giving us a glimpse into the throne room of God where we find that God is glorified. We say we glory in the Redeemer. We're trying to sing with our hearts, but like there's a, a fullness of glory going on. God is glorified for his holiness and his sovereignty. And God's people need to know in the midst of troubles that God is on the throne. We just saw Revelation uh, 2 and 3. The church is a mass sort of. Some are doing good. A lot are not so much. And it's like, eh. And then we come to chapter 4, and we have the throne room of God. Look at Revelation chapter 4. After this, I, John's talking, looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures, full of eyes, front and behind. And the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty 
who was and who is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. First point today is the invitation. The invitation. First off, notice the kind words of Jesus as he invites John into this heavenly vision. Jesus invites. Jesus takes initiative here. Jesus initiates toward John to go into the throne room. This beloved disciple is who we know John to be, who knows Jesus, is now invited by the fully glorified Jesus, and he heads to the throne room. And remember, John has just heard about the seven churches, the seven letters to the seven churches with significant struggles, many suffering from persecution and seduction of their culture. Tim Chester gives this illustration. He says, you know, on the heels of Revelation 3, or 2 and 3, we get to Revelation chapter 4, and it's kind of like, have you ever been in like a dark barn? So you're in a barn, maybe you're a kid in your uncle's barn or something like that, and there's, there's slivers of light coming from the cracks within the wall of the barn, the boards, and you can align your eye with the light and start seeing beyond the barn. Right? You align your eye with the beam of light and you see grandeur. You see outside, you see the sunlight, the leaves, the trees, whatever. He says that's what's happening here. In the darkness of what we've seen of chapters 2 and 3, we align our eye with the light of the throne room of God. God initiates and John allows us to see the reality of the throne room. So let's look at what the central focus of this throne room is. Point number two, the one who is on the throne, the one on the throne. That's the central point of this entire text. Look at verse two. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, as John enters the room, he sees this throne, but not just a throne. He sees the one seated on the throne, and he is trying to describe the one on the throne, but we really just get like some colors and precious stones. Jasper, which can be yellow, red, or brown. Carnelian, which is a bright red. Commentators note that John does not give features of the one who is on the throne. We have this massive description in chapter 1 of what Jesus looks like. He's got the hair that's white with wool. He's got like blazing fire out of his eyes, bronze feet, sword coming out of his mouth, all these detailed descriptions of the son in chapter 1. And what do we get in chapter 4 about the father? Not a whole lot. Like couple of rocks. Like, okay, like what's going on here? Jasper and carnelian, we get colors. The ancient of days is barely described. John, we would like a little more detail here. 
And you just kind of get the idea that words are insufficient. Just as you, whatever, the, the mountain view or the baseball field or whatever, and you're just, you're breathtaking. You're like, oh. It's kind of what seems to be happening here. John is blown away. Verse 3 continues with the colors. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald, red and orange and yellow and green and blue and indigo and violet. And remember, the rainbow makes us go back to the Old Testament, and we think of God's promise to Noah, after judgment, mercy. After judgment, mercy. After judgment, mercy. Greg Beale says that the precious stones reflect the light representing God's glory and the rainbow represents God's mercy. We've got God's glory, and we've got God's mercy. God's glory and God's mercy. That is our God, and that's what the church needed to know, and that's what we needed to know. We don't need to know the eye color or the hair length of descriptions of the one on the throne. We need to know the glory of the one on the throne. We need to know the mercy of the one on the throne. We're invited into this throne room to join in the awe and wonder already happening. As we continue, we will notice this, the centrality of everything around the throne. Everything is focused on the one on the throne. Look at verse, uh, verse 4 of chapter 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. So there are 24 thrones around the main throne, and there are humans in white garments with crowns on their head. Some scholars think this is 24 elders representing 24 different orders of the priests in the Old Testament. However, most scholars think that the 24 elders represent a 12 and a 12. And so we've talked about numerology in the book of Revelation. That's really important as you're looking at apocalyptic literature like this. And when you're going 12, uh, you usually pull on a couple things from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And so here's what they are thinking. I think, ah, you're probably right there. 12, 12 of the Old Testament uh, the, the, uh, the patriarchs, the, the ones who are the sons of Jacob, Israel. Jacob and Israel are the same person, right, in the Old Testament. So you have the 12 tribes. So this represents all of the Old Testament people before the throne, all God's people from the Old Testament. And then the other 12 representing the apostles, the disciples, the 12 who are with Jesus. So all of the Old Testament people being represented and all of the New Testament people represent the rep representation of the whole of God's people before the throne focused on and worshiping God. God's people around the throne. And what are they wearing? They're wearing white robes, white representing purity, white representing absence of sin in the presence of God. We'll get to chapter 5 and find out how that even happens. And what is on their head? Golden crowns. 
a kingdom of priests to our God, the priesthood of the believers, which you see in the Old Testament. That's what God goes toward Israel with. We want you to be a kingdom of priests. We see with Peter said you're going to be a kingdom of priests to our God. We find that these elders are mentioned throughout Revelation. In chapter 5, they're praying. In chapter 8, they're praying. They're actually praying for the saints on earth. There's this great cloud of witnesses that are praying for God's people on earth. But friends, let us note that though humanity is represented around God's throne, humanity is not central. Humanity is not central. In our culture, we either focus totally on humanity, where we become so optimistic about human achievement and accomplishments and inventions that we feel no need for God. We worship humanity, or we completely degrade humanity, say we are a bunch of glorified monkeys, we can kill babies, we can elevate animals above children, all that kind of stuff. So we either elevate humanity beyond where it should be, or we degrade humanity beyond where it should be. Both are mistakes. And the Scriptures teach us that humanity is valuable. We are in God's image, the special creation. And yet we are not the one that's central in this picture. No one's gathered around us, worshiping us. No, we gather around the one that's the creator. We gather around the throne. All of God's people focused on the throne. God is central. Look at verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire that are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass-like crystal. So there's indescribable beauty of all the colors around the throne. The rainbow, the emeralds, the carnelian, the colors. But there's also accompanied here in verse 5 an unsettling terror. Loud thunder rumbles and lightning. We in the low country know what loud thunder, rumbles, and lightning pretty much every day in July and August. Like every afternoon as the humidity builds, it's like, boom! My kids know that. They wake me up sometimes to let me know about the thunder that's going on. But there's an unsettling terror and this points back again to the Old Testament. We've talked oftentimes about how um, the, John takes his palette, his painter's palette of the Old Testament, and he's painting Revelation with his, his palette of Isaiah or, or Ezekiel or Daniel. Right here he's painting with a little more of Genesis, or Exodus where Moses is on Mount Sinai. And Moses encounters God, and what's happening? Thunder and lightning and shaking. God is holy and also terrifying. Or to paraphrase Narnia, C.S. Lewis, of course the lion Aslan isn't safe, but he is good. We got glory here, and it will rattle you in mercy. 
And before the throne are seven torches of fire. That harkens back to Zechariah chapter 4, which the text says are the seven spirits of God. Now, you might be getting a little rattled about like, wait, I thought there was one spirit. Well, seven, the numerology of the apocalyptic literature is wholeness or completion. We've seen this phrase in chapter 1. We saw this phrase in chapter 3. The wholeness of the spirit, the completion of the spirit, or what we would say the Holy Spirit. So you have the Holy Spirit around the throne of the Father, the fullness of the Spirit in the presence of the throne. And then verse 6 says, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now waters in the Old Testament often represent turmoil and chaos. But here they are still. They are calm. There is peace, not a ripple. God is in complete control. He is over all the chaos. God is holy. God is sovereign. All revolve around him. Continuing in the text, the second part of verse 6, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. We talked about this quite a bit in our Digging Deeper workshops. Isaiah saw these same creatures and called them seraphim. Ezekiel saw these creatures and called them cherubim. These are creatures that are guarding the Garden of Eden after man is expelled. These are the ones representing it, represented in gold above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Again, the painter's palette of the Old Testament is all over the book of Revelation. There are heavenly realities. And notice the symbolism here. One like a lion, which is the noblest of creatures that would be known in ancient times. The ox, the strongest man, the wisest, eagle, the swiftest. All classes of creatures here. Tom Schreiner says that they are full of eyes, which symbolizes the way they vigilantly watch over the world as God's agents. Greg Beale says that these four creatures represent the whole of created order and that they're performing the function which all creation is meant to fulfill. All creation was to praise God for his holiness and glorify him. That's what these four living creatures are doing. We have creation. These four creatures represent creation around God's throne. The elders represent special creation, humanity around God's throne. What is creation doing? What they're always supposed to be doing which is worshiping the one on the throne. This is what we see at the Garden of Eden. This is what we see as as we get longing, I will be your God and you will be my people. Unhindered, unbroken, wholeness. As Romans 8 says, the creation groans for the knowledge, for the knowing of God. Creation right now groans in wanting to worship And B, let go and out of the dungeon of this current brokenness. As we continue to study in Revelation, we will find that the four living creatures appear again. They will be the ones who summon the breaking of the first four seals 
and the judgment that's represented by the four horses in chapter 6. These four creatures worship Yahweh. And in worshiping Yahweh, it's not just all fun and games of like, yes, this is good. There's also a summoning of judgment. What we will see as we continue in chapter 6 through 19 is there's, there's the prayers of the people that is a prayer for judgment. Lord, help us. Help us get out of this, this, this prayer for, Lord, let your kingdom come and will be done. There's saints under the altar praying. There's other saints praying. There's the saints around the throne. There's these elders praying. Everybody's praying, help. And these four creatures unleash the seals. Jesus uses them as we'll see Jesus breaking the seals starting in chapter, or that he's the one who breaks the seals. We find that out in chapter 5 and chapter 6. We see the seals being broken. That judgment that continues to come throughout the cycles of history is what we start finding in chapter 6. And so we must note the 24 elders are around the throne the Holy Spirit's before the throne, the living creatures on each side of the throne. So what's the point? The throne or the one on the throne. Everything revolves around the throne. Greg Beal again says this, all heavenly beings find their significance in their placement around the throne. And all earth's inhabitants are judged on the basis of their attitude to God's claim to rule over them from his throne. Everything about this throne matters, and your response to the throne, the one on the throne, matters. Is there rebellion in response to the one on the throne, or is there delight and worship of the holiness and merciful love of God? Everything revolves around the throne. So we must ask ourselves, what is our attitude toward the one on the throne? What is our attitude in our hearts even now toward the one on the throne? The idea of God having a claim on our lives. Because God's throne calls for a response. Will our life align with what we find happening in heaven? Will our life align with what we see here as we continue our text, look at verse 8. We're going to see our third point, which is the adoration. Second part of verse 8 says that day and night, these four living creatures never cease to say this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The worship of God never ceases. All right, so when we come on a Sunday morning, we are not starting to worship God. We are joining in the worship that's already happening. Welcome. That's why we have a call to worship. Like we're, as one of the elders up here is calling us to recognize the worship that's already happening. Let's join in, family. Let's, let's join in to the worship and adoration that God deserves that's already happening in heaven. The worship of God never ceases. God is holy. But God who rules on his throne is, get this, not just holy. He's not just completely other and separate and morally excellent in every way. He isn't just holy, and he's not even just holy, holy. In the Hebrew and Greek, the way you emphasize something is by adding words to it. We don't do that a ton in English unless you're a kid. And I was very, 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 very excited 
you know, or something like that. Or I really, really, really want ice cream. Like, that's what, how kids just boom, 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 we're going to pile it up. Well, that's really good Hebrew and Greek, so you can commend your child for their equivalency. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. That means what I'm about to say, because he's repeated himself, is very important. God, the Father, is tri-holy. Holy, holy, holy. The best book I've ever read on the holiness of God is called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. He says this, there's only one attribute of God that is ever raised to the third degree of repetition in Scripture. There's only one characteristic of Almighty God that is communicated in the superlative degree from the mouths of angels where the Bible doesn't simply say that God is holy or even that he is holy, holy, but that he is holy, holy, holy. The Bible doesn't say that God is mercy, 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 or love, 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 or justice, 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 or wrath, 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 but he is holy, holy, holy. This is a dimension of God that consumes his very essence. When it is manifest to Isaiah, we read that at the sound of the voices of the seraphim, the doorpost, the threshold of the temple itself shook and began to tremble. Do you hear that? Inanimate, lifeless, unintelligible parts of creation in the presence of the, of the manifestation of the holiness of God had the good sense to be moved. How can we, made in his image, be indifferent or apathetic to his majesty? God alone is holy. When Isaiah encounters the holiness of God, he becomes aware, woe is me. Woe is me. Woe is all the people. We're... we're, we're we have unclean lips, we have unclean hearts. Woe is me. Friends, are we moved by God's holiness or are we indifferent and apathetic? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. God's holy. God's even holy, holy. God's even holy, holy, holy. And it is unmoving to my heart. I've gotten so used to this. I've sung the songs, I've memorized the scriptures. I can quote you Isaiah 6. But it just, there's a, it's, it's removed from my heart, I'm removed from my emotions. Or are we moved by God's holiness? Are we startled and staggered like the, the temple of God, the threshold that begins to shake? Are you joining in with the 24 elders and the four living creatures to worship the holy God? Or... Are you worshiping cheap substitutes? Like, that's the option. You either worship this majestic God that everything is around the throne worshiping in heaven, or you have like some cheap substitute on the side that will not fulfill, that will compromise your life and ultimately kill you. But hey, that's what we like to do. God is worthy of worship. He's worthy of all worship all the time. Revelation 4 9, continuing verse 9, 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever. Notice these four living creatures representing creation. What do they do? They give glory. They give honor. They give thanks. That, that's a disposition. How do I respond to the one around the throne? Let's learn from these four living creatures. Glory, honor, and thanks. So they give glory. They praise and adore the one on the throne. They give honor. They show proper respect and reverence. They give thanks. There is a gratitude that this isn't something they accomplished. This isn't something you accomplished to be around the throne, to be able to go to heaven, to be able to worship God, to have any kind of access You have no access without his initiation. And we'll see in chapter 5 how that even happens. What do the elders do when this happens? Verse 10, the second part, says, They, the elders, cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The elders agree with the four living creatures, and the special creation agrees with the general creation. God is worthy. That should be a a normal word on our lips when we're praying to God, when we're adoring God. You are worthy. You're worthy of more worship than I can give you. You're, You're worthy of all my time, my energy, my life. You're worthy. He is worthy of all of it. Glory, honor, power. There's, a, there's a, a rootedness in us understanding who he is and a rootedness in us understanding who we are. Notice what it says. Who he is, he's worthy, he's being praised, he's being adored, his power, his glory. Who are we? We're created. And that's what, what it says. For you created all things, that includes us, because you're created, thanks for breathing right now, like you're living And by your will, God's will, they exist. It's by God's will that you right now exist and were created. It's by God's will that you are sustained right now and have this day of July 9th, 2023 to live for God's glory, for he is worthy and you have a purpose in his creation for his glory. You're existing because he's allowing you to exist. And he's sustaining you today. Your heart, you're not causing your heart to beat. You don't even know that your heart's beating right now until I just said that. Now you're like, okay, yeah, okay, okay, yep, still beating. Good, no one's falling over right now. You're breathing right now, but most of us haven't been thinking about our breathing throughout this sermon. But God's allowing oxygen to enter your lungs, your body to be sustained. And just that little thought of how he's sustaining you points to his worth and grandeur. And he's sustaining us. And just think about football stadiums of people all over the world, billions of people sustained by God, worthy. And that's just the aspect of his creation We're not even talking about other aspects of who God is. Glory, honor, and power. He is worthy of all praise. 
And friends, note the context of Revelation chapter 4. This comes on the heels of talking to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. What do these churches who are struggling with persecution, struggling with seduction, what do they need to know? Do they need to know seven steps of how to get out of persecution? Do they need to know how to handle all the different ways of pulling away from the seduction? There's probably some helpful tips there, but what do they ultimately need to know? They need to know God on his throne. That's what we need to know. In life's troubles, in life's struggles, in our own sin struggles, we need to know that God is on the throne. He is holy and he is sovereign. There's a church that was patiently enduring, but they lost their first love. There's a church that was suffering, and Jesus said, be faithful unto death. There's a church that was compromising with idolatry. There was a church that was being disciplined by Christ. There was a church that had the reputation for life, but there was death. There was a church that was small and weak, but so dearly loved and walking out faithfulness. And there was a church that made Jesus want to vomit. And yet he initiated repentance and let's dine together because relationship is, is available what do these churches need? These churches that compromised, these churches that were enduring, these churches that were suffering, these churches that were struggling, they need to know that God is on the throne. They need to know that God is glorious and merciful. They need to know that God is sovereignly ruling in their lives. And friends, that's not just what they need to know. That's what we need to know. We need to join in the worship, not just when we sing songs, but all day long. We join in the worship that's also happening because God is on the throne in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sin, in the midst of struggle. He is on the throne, and he is worthy of your worship. So in the midst of our struggles with sin, we repent and we worship in the midst of our struggles with suffering, we trust and we worship. In the midst of our joy and encouragements, we rejoice and we worship. We say this every week, and you might be used to hearing it if you've been here for a while. We exist to glorify God. We exist to glorify God. So let's stand together. Christopher, you can come on up here or band, or whoever's coming. Friends, let's join in what's already been happening of honor and worship to the glory of God who deserves so much more worship and singing and prayer and adoration and lives lived unto Him than we can even give. Let's sing to Him and worship Him now.